This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Welcome to today's event. Uh, welcome to the Moraine Valley Library. It's great to see you. Um, today we do our second event in our One Book, One College uh, series on uh, Roxana Sabari's Between Two Worlds. This is our um, eighth book that we've done, so eight years of uh, the One Book, One College program. Uh, we do this, the library does this every year in partnership with the bookstore. So if you haven't read the book, this is what it looks like. You've probably seen her face around campus. We've been uh, plastering it everywhere. Uh, you can check out this book from us. I checked this morning. They're all checked out, <laughs> but you can put on a hold. Uh, we do have copies of ev- eventually in the library, or you can go to the bookstore and buy it. I would encourage you to do that because Miss um, Sabari is coming to campus November 8th and 9th. So this is a first out of eight years of this program, the first time we've been able to have uh, the author come to campus, and we're doing that thanks to the support, and I want to acknowledge them, of the Palos Fine Arts Council, which is in the Palos area. They work with the Green Hills Library, uh, Palos Park Library, Palos Heights Library. Um, we are very fortunate. Uh, thank you. Uh, we're very grateful for their generosity in making it happen. So mark your calendars, November 8th and 9th. You can actually come and have your book signed, listen to her speak. Um, it's free of charge uh, right here on campus. So with that, I want to introduce um, Krista Applequist, who's going to moderate our panel today. Thank you, panel members. I'm looking forward to this discussion, and we'll get on with the show. Thank you all for coming to our book discussion today. I'm, for those of you who have not read the book, I'm going to give you a really brief uh, explanation about Roxana Sabiri's experience, which is uh, what she chronicled in her book, Between Two Worlds, My Life in Captivity in Iran. Then I'll introduce the panel members. Then we'll, then we'll play a clip from John Stewart, because she actually made it on The Daily Show. And then I'll introduce our panel members panel members and we'll go, we'll go forward from there. Okay, Roxana Sabiri was raised in America, mostly in North Dakota. In fact, she was a beauty pageant contestant. She was Miss North Dakota in 1997. She studied journalism and actually got one of her master's degree right near here at Northwestern University. Well, she worked as a journalist for many international media outlets, including freelance writing for the BBC. Well, her mother is Iranian. She was from Iran. So she, Roxana wanted to connect with her roots, so she went back to Iran and decided to start interviewing a bu- dozens of people to try to write a book about Iran, about its economy, about its culture, about its religion, about life in Iran. Well, while writing her book, one day in January of 2009, some men knocked on her apartment door. They arrested her, and they took her to a prison called Evan Prison in Iran. When she saw Evan on the documentation, her heart sank. Here she is trying to write her book, maybe naively going forth and not expecting any trouble, and she sees Evan. Evan Prison is a place where people become detained. Sometimes they become detained for an unknown period of time without their family or friends ever knowing where they are. Sometimes they sort of disappear. Sometimes they're executed in a day. Evan Prison is a very scary place. It's a place of torture, torment, brutality, and at the very best, just really rough conditions there. So this book is about her experience in Evan Prison, where she spent four months. And this event didn't occur in a vacuum. There were a lot of political and historical, psychological, even gender issues that made all of this possible. And that's what our panel is going to be discussing today. So uh, before I introduce the panelists, let's just play the clip from The Daily Show. My guest tonight, a journalist and an author. Uh, she spent nearly five months in an Iranian prison. Her new book is called Between Two Worlds, My Life in Captivity in Iran. Please welcome to the show, Roxana Saberi. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. You don't seem to have any support in the audience at all. No, no. <laughs> I, thought, I literally thought they were going to about to carry you out here. Right. Oh, come on out. <laughs> uh, nice to see you. Thanks for, for coming by. The book is called...
we skip it? Try to reload once and then uh, if it doesn't work, maybe skip it. Maybe bring it back. No, they can, we can maybe put it on the website and people can look up the link and watch it. Yeah. We can send the podcast to Campus Network as an example of our network in action. <laughs> We're experiencing technical difficulties. Please bear with us. Let's see if the reload matters. We might get a commercial. You know what? I'm done talking to you as a person, and now <laughs> we're going to communicate with you through sync. This is, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Please say a command. Listen to text. You're a sad little man. We also lost our image. Tonight, a journalist and an author. Uh, she spent nearly five months in an Iranian prison. Her new book is called Between Two Worlds, My Life in Captivity in Iran. Please welcome to the show, Roxana Saberi. Okay. I think we better skip it. Yeah. We could just skip it. Yeah. Well, anyway, so you may have heard her name in the newspapers before or even seen this clip from The Daily Show. The clip will be available via some link off of our library website. I know our, our librarian, Troy, will make that available. All right, let me introduce our panelists. Uh, to my left here, we have Mary Fafleese. She's a professor of history. We have Kevin Navratil over to her left, professor of political science. Very popular guy here. We've got, we've got Jeremy Shermack, who teaches communication, like I do. I'm coming from a speech background, by the way. Uh, but uh, Jeremy is actually coming to us today from a journalistic perspective, journalism perspective. And then we have Sandra Beauchamp from literature. And that is our panel. So I would like to direct the first question to Mary Fafleese. Mary, it's important to understand these events within the historical context in which they occurred. Would you please give us an overview of that? Uh, yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, I've put together a very brief, for, in order to understand the context of what was happening with, with Sabiri being imprisoned, it's important to understand briefly U.S.-Iranian relations. So I'm going to literally, like, uh, we're, we're going to take about two or three minutes here to go through some major events in, uh, in that history. So I'm going to actually use my little, I'm so excited about this Dippity website. My students are, like, groaning inwardly because they know. Um, so this man right here, was the Shah, the Prince of Iran, and he ruled Iran after his father was deposed in the early 1940s. And the Shah uh, was very connected to, to Western governments, to the U.S. and to the U.K. among them. And uh, in 1950, I'm going to go back for a second here, this man, Mohammad Mossadegh, was uh, voted in, in place as a reformer, and the Shah was kicked out of power. And one of the things that Mossadegh did that earned him the enmity of a lot of uh, um, Americans and British, particularly in the oil industry, was to nationalize a company called the Anglo-Iranian uh, uh, Anglo Oil Company. You may know, now know, know that company as BP. It's still around today. And when he did this, he got himself a lot of enemies. And in 1952 into 53, the CIA and MI6, the British and American intelligence forces, helped to uh, overthrow Mohammad Mossadegh and reinstate the Shah. So for those that, that um, are following Iranian history, they, you know, some Iranians may not be altogether too happy with the U.S. and British uh, inter intervening in their affairs. Now, the Shah was, uh, instituted a lot of reforms throughout Iran, but a lot of those reforms didn't make people very happy. Uh, he was also known as a bit of a, of a, a demagogue and, and, a, and a tyrant. Uh, if you were to speak out against his regime, you'd end up in prison very quickly, or you might be tortured by Savak, his secret police, they used to do lovely things like beating people on the bottoms of their feet um, and other lovely types of, of torture. But as you notice, I've got a photograph here of the Shah with uh, President Kennedy and Mrs. Kennedy and his wife. Um, and this indicates that he was supported by all these different American regimes from uh, the time of, of the, the Truman administration uh, throughout the time of his overthrow. In 1979, though, a revolution occurs in Iran in which the Shah is overthrown. He's forced to basically leave the country and go into exile. And in the meantime, uh, his nemesis, the Ayatollah Khomeini, a Shiite cleric who was exiled to France, returns back to Iran triumphantly uh, and, and, re and retakes takes the country. And, and Iran becomes an Islamic republic, under, uh, being ruled by, uh, under religious law. And things change. American-Iranian relations change dramatically after that point. And in November of the same year, a group of students 
uh, take over the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and take seize hostages, in which hostages that are held for over a year, over a year and a half, actually. Now, there's some context for this as well. The Shah, when he left Iran in uh, January of 79, was admitted to the United States to come for cancer treatment to New York. He was, he was dying of cancer at this point. And uh, there was a lot of concern by Iranians that he might be reinstated, reimposed, the same way that he was back in the 50s. And so it's not necessarily excusing it or justifying it. It's just maybe explaining what the mentality of some Iranians had about uh, U.S.-Iranian relations. Later on the next year, at, while the hostages are still being held in Tehran, uh, Iraq invades Iran to, for a variety of different reasons, but one of which is to forestall a similar type of thing, a similar type of revolution. He's a, Saddam Hussein's afraid of the same kind of thing happening in Iraq that just happened in Iran. Now, what's interesting is what the U.S. role is in this. The U.S. supports Saddam Hussein in his war against Iran, gives them weapons and, and funding to fight the Iranians. At the same time, we were also actually giving funding to the Iranians behind closed doors so that they could release some hostages, too. So there's a, a co very complicated and complex history. Now, I'm not going to go too far beyond that, but just I will also say that you know, for every, every action that we take, there is a reaction to those events and consequences to those events. In 1990, Saddam Hussein, emboldened by his weapons and by his status that he thought he had, invades Kuwait. In response, the U.S. forces go into uh, the area, are on Saudi soil, which makes a certain individual named Osama bin Laden angry and gives him, among other reasons, one more reason to be angry at the United States. And so I'm going to bring it up to basically 9-11, in which um, Iran at that point was being ruled by a reformer, reformer president, uh, who was actually trying to kind of open things up a little bit with the U.S. And there's a softening of the relationship there, especially after September 11th, uh, because the Iranians were no friends of the Taliban in Afghanistan either. So that brings us to 9-11, and uh, the relationship is going to change dramatically after that uh, when, uh, during the Bush administration and the lead-up to the war in Iraq. And I believe uh, Kevin might talk a little bit more about that. So I hope that wasn't too long, but thank you. Yeah, thank you, Mary. Kevin, would you please expand on that and discuss the policies that may have impacted her detention? Yeah, thank you. Um, hello, everyone. As they introduced me, I'm a political scientist by training, so my background, I think, this biased me with the way that I approach this book. So I just wanted to follow up with some of the context that Mary was uh, talking about. On page 24, there's a line in the book from one of the intelligence officers that had detained Roxana, saying, it's not possible you could be conducting so many interviews only for a book. And they assumed that she must be working with the U.S. government, and not just the U.S. government, but the CIA. And I, I believe I that. I believe that the Iranian intelligence thought that she might have been working with the United States in some way. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about why I would buy into that part of that because of my biases that I took into this book. The first of which um, is just kind of an overview. So I want to go through a few events, but I think I've used this cartoon in the classroom when we talk about U.S. foreign policy, and, and basically what this cartoon's getting at is that you know, one way that uh, Iranian leaders can use the United States is unifying their own people. The United States provides a great enemy for their people to rally behind, and it makes their own government stronger when you have this external threat like the United States. And as Mary said, you know, there's some justification for that. Again, at no way, shape, or form am I trying to justify Iranian uh, detention of Roxana Sabari or any of their activities for that matter but they have successfully used the United States as a scapegoat over time. Um, Mary left off at 9-11. You know, initially, Iran really cooperated with the United States with going after some of the al-Qaeda terrorist suspects. They thought they were, you know, increasing cooperation and that their relationship was improving. And then there's um, a State of the Union address by President Bush where he bumps Iraq, Iran into the axis of evil and begins talking about regime change. So that plays into this as well. And so you have to keep in mind, you know, after 9-11, the, the United States sends troops into Afghanistan. 
Um, and starting in March of 2003, there's troops stationed in Iraq. At any given point in time, including today, we still have about 100,000 troops on e yeah, in total on each side of Iran. So they, I think it's fair to say, are a little bit paranoid or concerned about U.S. activities um, in their region. If you go back to the 2008 uh, presidential primary between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, and as you know, Hillary Clinton eventually became the U.S. Secretary of State, who is in charge of U.S. foreign policy in many regards, she made a comment about how, I'll just quote her directly, that if in the next 10 years Iran might be foolishly enough to consider an attack on Israel, we would be able to totally obliterate them. And so this is a person who, you know, is going to be dealing foreign policy with Iran. And then, as they mentioned earlier, uh, Roxana was detained in January, at the very end of January, early February, 11 days after Barack Obama had become president. And um, about, they were about five months away from their own election. And Ahmadinejad, their president, was facing re-election, and there was some concern, I think, amongst him and his, his uh, administration that reformers were making some he headway in their country. And so I think that they were very concerned about someone like Roxana doing a lot of she, – she admitted she interviewed over 60 different people from all walks of life, including reformers, including moderates, people who would be opposed to the Ahmadinejad uh, administration. So that brings me to a page 84 of the, tech, of the book. So Obama's been in office for 11 days before, or 11 days before her arrest. And there's a passage in here that I think is really telling. And then this is from coming from uh, page 84. In fact, my interrogator was now telling me, Americans, Democrats, are more dangerous than Republicans. Her uh, captor had asserted that while Republicans openly admitted they aimed to change the Iran's regime, Democrats pretended to favor diplomacy while quietly pursuing the same goal. Even if the threat of a U.S. military attack on Iran appeared to have subsided under President Obama, Washington would intensify its soft warfare to undermine the Islamic Republic and its Islamic ideology. So... One of the questions that they posed to me as a political scientist, what is the soft warfare element? So instead of using the you know, conventional you know, uh, military arms like the United States did in Iraq, what would be the soft warfare? I have some links here on Blackboard that uh, just to kind of verify some of the statements I'm about to make. But the United States, starting, at least we can document it, starting in around 2005, started spending around $75 million a year in Iran on democracy promotion and human rights. Well, what does that exactly mean? In some cases, this money was going to opposition groups inside of Iran who promoted regime change. And again, if you're, if you're looking through the lens of the Iranian regime, that would be very troubling if a foreign entity is giving money inside of your country to groups who want you removed and who want to end the Islamic Republic. Um, in 2007, and this is from a uh, New Yorker article, Congress agreed to request uh, to a request from President Bush to fund a major escalation of covert operations against Iran, including cur current and former military, intelligence, and congressional sources. These operations, for which the president sought up to $400 million, were described in a presidential finding signed by Bush and designed to destabilize the country's religious leadership. The covert activities involve support of minority groups, opposition and dissident organizations, and include gathering intelligence about Iran's suspected nuclear weapons program. And I'll just end by saying, you know, again, uh, under the Obama administration, many of these programs have continued. The United States is very concerned about their nuclear weapons program. They would prefer there to be regime change. They've talked about open diplomacy with Iran. But if you're the Iranian leaders, it's difficult to take that seriously when you know in the back of your minds all along they would like to have uh, new leaders in power. 
So I'll end, end for now. Um, maybe some questions will pop up about other elements of political science. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. That actually provides a nice segue into the question I have for Jeremy. So We Have Iran is now very concerned about this soft war, not a military attack, but a change of ideology that might destabilize the country and lead to a new le leadership. And that's why they often detain people for spreading ideas or disrupting things or organizing in ways that you take for granted as a as an American, you have a right to do. Um, many of the people detained in Evan were actually just for charges like corrupting Iran, like with corrupt ideas or new religious ideologies or, or new thoughts and arguments in general. Jeremy is coming to us from a journalism perspective, and I know America we value the concept of a free press and just the free expression of ideas. People have a right to stand up and say whatever they want or make a club about it or write a book about it. But those ideas are different in Iran in this context of the paranoia of a soft war. Uh, how might this be different for Roxana and how might this have affected her experiences, Jeremy? Thank you. One thing to think about here, and Kevin alluded to this a little bit, uh, in regards to the role of journalism in each country. Uh, if you think about journalism in the United States, uh, we have it, you know, it's often called the fourth branch, meaning it's a checks and balance system for our government. Now, there's arguments that say, well, maybe it doesn't always work that way. Uh, in Iran, though, what you have is it, it is part of their government. It is the, the voice and the uh, messenger of their government. Uh, that involves things like propaganda, uh, and they control the information that's delivered to its people. Uh, and that's very different from what we know. Uh, and that's obvious, right? We, you know, we can obviously tell that right away by simply maybe looking up Iranian journalism uh, on Google. What's interesting about this and what's really depicted in the book is the extremities we have here between the U.S. and Iran. Uh, for instance, uh, Writers Without Borders, I'm sorry, Reporters Without Borders, uh, which was a group that supported Ms. Saberi and uh, also supports other uh, journalists who are detained uh, or you know, imprisoned or in, violated in some way, uh, they have a, a, what they call a freedom index. And the freedom index indicates how free is the press in any given country. And you might think, some people might think the United States is number one. We're actually number 20. Uh, and there's a host of reasons why. Uh, and out of 180 countries, uh, Iran is 175. Uh, they're one of the more stringent uh, and more uh, difficult places to have free expression. There's consequences there for free expression. You know, in the United States, if you commit uh, some sort of libelous statement or uh, say something that is incorrect, uh, you might lose your reputation as a journalist. You might uh, be sued as a journalist. In Iraq, I'm sorry, Iran, uh, you'll be detained. Uh, you'll be imprisoned. You might be tortured. You might even be killed. So very different uh, ways that they handle that. Uh, Ms. Saberi, I think, was a real curveball for those that uh, were interrogating her. Uh, number one, she was a very well-trained journalist. Uh, if you don't know, North, she has a degree from Northwestern in journalism, uh, and that's one of the best schools in the United States, even in the world, uh, for journalism. Uh, so she's, she's very well-versed in how she conducts herself. She's very well-spoken. Uh, and I think that that sort of made the interrogators trust her less and may have made her more of a target uh, for this investigation. Uh, and when they claimed that she was working for the United States, uh, you know, I, I think Kevin mentioned this, they asked her, you know, who told you to write this book? Who said to write this book? How much are they paying you? And her motivation was really study the country, and it was really curiosity. And in, in the Iranian mindset for their journalists or almost anyone with some kind of creative intuition, there is no such thing as curiosity. You shouldn't be curious. There's always some ulterior motive. Um, ulterior motive. So that really struck me as a major difference between uh, the experience that you know Saberi might have had in this country, or that she did have in this country, writing, bringing up ideas, and that she ended up having in Iran. Um, so what, what I think what I took away from the book was how, just how strong of a person she was 
from a journalistic standpoint, she really stuck to her gun. She tried very hard to be truthful. She tried to say that she, you know, had balanced sources, uh, and she was very thorough in her investigations. And her de detainees, because they are a part of that Iranian government, didn't really care. Those things just don't matter there. Um, it's all about the message and how it's controlled and the purpose it has to promote the government. And before we move on to the next question, I just want to point out, Jeremy, you said that it's not acceptable to be writing a book like that, which covered, you know, the good things and the bad things about Iran. You have to have this motive. Right. Um, and according to her book, from what I read, a lot of the detainees, a lot of people were tortured, imprisoned, or even exiled um, under the accusation of spying, yep. when really what they were doing was spreading bad ideas or information the government didn't want out there. So they would just use like the cloak of espionage, oh, you must be a spy, to scare them and intimidate them or shut them up. Exactly. They never said, I'm arresting you because I don't like what you're saying. They had to use that other reason to try to prosecute them. Yeah. Yep. Okay, now to turn this to Sandra Beauchamp. We've been talking about the whole historical, journalistic, and even political events surrounding her arrest. Let's take this in a new direction. Um, here she was, this young woman lying on this concrete floor, out of touch with her family and friends, wondering how long she's going to be there, if she's going to be executed. They coerced this confession out of her, so she actually confessed to being a spy, and then later recanted it. Sandra, would you please elaborate on some of the psychological components of this, or even how does this fit in, in a literature perspective, into uh, the prison genre of literature? Right, sure. Well, um, one thing that I was struck by when I was reading this over the summer um, was the correlation that this had to many captivity narratives as early as the 17th century in the United States, uh, wherein um, these captivity narratives were written. And, can you guys hear me? Is that better? Yeah? Okay. Um, the correlation that I have with many captivity narratives in the 17th century where it, that were written and published, um, and what happened is that usually these were written by women or about women's experiences who were taken captive. And the psychological effects are very similar and correspond. Um, is that better? Yeah, I can hear myself actually. Okay. Um, and these women were, you know, uh, seemingly innocent who were taken by the other that was misunderstood. The difference here with Roxana Sabiri is that she had lived for a considerable amount of time in Iran um, and living and understanding and working and interacting with many uh, Iranian uh, residents. So she did have knowledge of, of them, but unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, um, she had this youthful kind of sense of invincibility. And that coupled with the fact that she was an American citizen and she was a journalist, um, perhaps gave her a false sense of her own security in that country. And so when her, her press credentials were taken away from her, she continued to live in Iran and she continued to go about reporting for uh, the BBC. Um, and then, so when those men came to her apartment and when she was half asleep uh, and with the intention of delivering her a letter, she let them in and they forced their way in. Now imagine that. Put yourself in that position. You are in a foreign country that you've been living in for some time and three men enter your apartment and begin rifling through your personal belongings and order you to go with them. You are by yourself. Your family is far away. And it doesn't stop there. She's taken and detained and stripped of everything of her identity, her books, her belongings, everything. And then she's blindfolded. And that was something else that struck me about the psychological impact of their interrogation techniques was the metaphor of the blindfold. Yes, she was physically blindfolded, but she was also spiritually, emotionally blindfolded and kept away from everything. The only voices she heard were that of the interrogators. And I think... Perhaps that could account for her fear. Um, she wanted to be released. They said the only way that she would be released is if that she did what they wanted. And so she did, hence the false confession. Um, but later, when she was in solitary confinement, her mind began racing um, about all of the fears of what could actually happen to her. It dawned on her what was facing her and then. Her 
captors or her interrogators brought in the threat against her family. Um, I have the page. Um, it, it says where he is bl- she is blindfolded and she's led through these rooms. They're not even touching her. They're kind of dragging her and she's tripping over these shoes they've given her. Um, and it says that she begins to feel faint. The smell of fresh paint from nowhere nearby mingled with the male body odor, filling my nostrils and clouding my already foggy mind. Sweat was dripping down my armpits, and I felt the walls of the small, stuffy room caving in on me. You should know, another interrogator began. We have agents all over the world, even in America. We can easily find your family. So not only is she herself in peril, but now there is a threat against her family. Imagine what kind of psychological impact that can do to a young person. And she was young at the time, passing her 32nd birthday in captivity. Um, so it's, I think that a lot of people might say that she's naive, and I think to a certain degree that she was. However, uh, without empathy, we can't understand really what she was going through and why she did what she did. And in her false confession, she actually gave a name of one of her interviewees, and which was sort of hanging him out to dry. And then she was promised a release if she gave the false confession. And there was a point where she claims that one of her interrogators even said, we know you're not a spy. We just are doing this to you to sort of shut you up, scare you, whatever. Oh, and they wanted her to work for the Iranian intelligence, so they offered her this. So here she is being offered to become a spy, and that's what she's accused of being, if she would only cooperate, and so she agrees, and then later recants. Sandra, what was happening to her when she decided, I'm just going to tell these guys, nope, I'm changing my confession, I'm not really a spy? Well, part of it came from the the fact that she was able to actually interact with other female prisoners who had been there as well, and they were able to share experiences and create a community. Without that, without that exposure or without that ability to communicate with other women, um, it's hard to know what would have happened to her, but she had their support. She saw their strength, and from that she was able to build on her own. There's also an element that's, uh, that's common in captivity narratives, in, in hostage literature and even now prison literature that's coming out and is more, pro, is, uh, more prolific and found, um, is this renewed sense of faith. Um, she questioned often of God, and she questioned the relationship of God and justice. At one point she says, is this, is this God's idea of justice? And so she seems to sink very low, but then she's very quickly buoyed by the spirits of the people that she's surrounded by, the women, and even the guards to a certain extent, the female guards, um, who were not cruel to her necessarily, um, who actually engaged her in conversation about her family. Um, she often did things to keep her mind preoccupied. She didn't have paper or pen, which for a writer or a journalist um, is almost like you know having your, your tongue removed. Um, she was un- but she said that she went over these things in her mind, and there was one point where she would sing the Star Spangled Banner um, or tap uh, Rachmaninoff on the prison walls, in order to keep her mind moving and to keep herself, you know, occupied. Um, but when she began to sing the Star Spangled Banner, something that many of us uh, may take for granted, that was when it really hit her. And she said, and I'm paraphrasing, it is not until your freedom is stripped from you that you realize how important it actually is. So despite the, the terrible um, circumstances of her captivity, she had an awakening. Um, a spiritual one, and also one of importance about what freedom actually meant. And sometimes for many of us, maybe we don't understand what that is until it is tested. And in this way, she certainly was. And and just to add one thing to that, as we conduct this panel, it's really great for us to sit here and talk about this, but as we speak, there are people in Evan Prison who are accused of spying who are not spies. Some of them are, some of them might be, some of them are not. For example, the hikers that were recently detained in Evan Prison. Um, 
So it took an immense amount of courage for her because most people in her situation admit to being a spy. I'm a spy, I'm a spy. And then once they're out and free and exiled from the country, then they tell everyone, I was just kidding, I'm not, you know, really a spy, but I, I had to say that. And it took an immense amount of courage for her to look them in the eye and say, no, I'm telling you the truth. You know, so I just wanted to say that. Now, before I open it up to questions and comments from the audience, I just want to ask, do our panelists have anything else they'd like to add? Oh, just about the fact that Anything, yeah, um, about anything at all. When you mentioned the hikers that have been detained, for those of you who are following that in the news, this seems to be kind of the MO of the, of the Ahmadinejad uh, uh, administration. He just announced this morning that they will likely, even though they were just sentenced to eight years in prison, um, was it just about a month, like a couple weeks ago, a month ago, he announced today, oh, they'll probably be getting out in a couple of days. And that tends to be something that they do, which, which Kevin and I were speculating has a lot more to do with Iranian in, internal politics for him to be able to satisfy uh, forces within his own country that might question the strength of, of the administration. And so it's likely that those, those, hi, those uh, hikers are going to be released sometime soon, kind of much the same way that Sabiri was. So. Okay, audience members, what questions do you have or comments would you like to make? Don't all jump up at once. Yes, sir. Let me repeat the question just for the podcast. He says uh, she's aware. She's an intelligent woman. She's lived in Iran for a while. She knows how they treat women and how they treat, you know, people. Why would she go and do this, go and write this book, you know, if she's supposedly knowledgeable of this? Well, I, I think what Sandra had just said a little bit ago s speaks to this. I mean, I, I teach American government, and we talk about the Constitution and these basic protections you have of free speech. And a lot of times it falls flat, to be honest, and even internally it does. Until you actually read a, a captivating story like this of somebody, they provided no evidence against her. She even admits maybe she was a, uh, this idea of a innocent until proven guilty may have been naive. But, you know, being socialized with the American freedoms and the Western freedoms and values that we have, there's no way that you're going to detain somebody that long without allowing them, you know, uh, a, a legitimate due process where they're able to have lawyers and be able to, um, you know, have evidence brought against them. I think that mindset really, she came in with that assumption because of her background. Well, I think I wouldn't. I would never call it childless. Child. I'm sorry. Did you say child? Child, like, childish. Childish innocence. The, they were aware of what she was doing. She had been approved. She was, you know, asking, you know, pretty basic questions. You know, she wasn't doing anything that was, you know, on on face value illegal. I mean, she was just, you know, doing basic interviews and. I don't think that she had any idea that anything like that could, you know, I don't think that she really thought that this could happen to her. I think there's a lot of people who share your your, yeah, your thoughts. And we talk about this better. amongst ourselves. There's definitely many people who, who bring that perspective. Ask her when she comes. Yeah. yeah. What were you thinking? <laughs> Uh, 
Oh, yeah. He said that, you know, as an American citizen, and she had dual citizenship, she's American and Iranian, knowing that a citizen like that is out there doing something, can't our government do more to protect her and to stop all this and defend her? Did I paraphrase your question? Uh, yeah, like even in the case of the hikers. Even like in the case of the hikers. Yeah, these guys are mm-hmm. over there. They're not particularly like getting involved in any type of uh, idealistic, Like, why can't our government step in and say, hey, you have to present clear charges with some kind of evidence to hold these people, just like our due process? I'm going to let uh, Mary address that. Well, it's a, part of it's a question of, of na- well, it's a combination of things, but it's Iranian national sovereignty. They, they make the rules for their own country, so the U.S. can't dictate, well, this is what you need. They do. They try to in the court of public opinion, if you will. Um, but the U.S. State Department has travel warnings against traveling to Iran. We have not had diplomatic relations with Iran since 1979. We've frozen Iranian assets. We have diplomatic sanctions against Iran since the mid-1990s. So in terms of where the U.S. government stands, as an American citizen going to Iran, um, you can't even travel. There are no flights that go from the U.S. to to Tehran. You have to go through another country that has dealings with Iran. So as far as being a U.S. citizen, I think you know when you go there that um, there isn't even a U.S. embassy in Tehran. If you want help, the, the U.S. maintains an office in the Swiss embassy, because Switzerland's a neutral country, so that's kind of your, the only place that you could go to for some help. Um, but as far as telling people not to go there, we do have travel warnings against it. Now, in terms of what the U.S. can do, again, the court of public opinion is pretty powerful, and the more, in the case of Sabiri, the more that her story was out there and that journal, other journalists, American journalists and other journalists throughout the world took up her cause and spoke about it, that generated more media attention to it. Which I guess also raises the question that we had discussed too before, which is, you know, if she'd been someone else, it was the fact that she was this woman, this very attractive, intelligent, lovely female, had she been someone else, would she get the same attention? Did she get more attention than these hikers? I probably would say I think the hikers have gotten quite a bit of attention too. Um, but I think, in, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that's probably about the limits uh, up to what the U.S. can do. And, and besides taking Iran to the world court and try to argue it out there, Good luck. That's going to be, you know, years, years down the road. And keep in mind, she was no longer considered a U.S. citizen. That's one of the first Fair. things the yeah. interrogators told her. You're an Iranian. Yeah. Do you think they would have been treated better, or they would have been treated? He's suggesting a male in her shoes would have been treated better than a female. It did come up once. They they thought she was more likely to be a spy because she was an educated female journalist. That I do remember that, but I don't know. I don't. I really don't know the answer to your question. Yeah, if you're that educated, that well spoken, and you're female, what else could you be? But yeah. there's another. I think that part that also. I'm sorry, I'm jumping in here again, but. Um, you know, our perception of Iran also has something to do with how we look at this. And, and, you know, we tend to view, we can't judge Iranians by what the Iranian government puts out there. You can't judge it by the crazy crap that Ahmadinejad says anytime someone gives them a microphone. Um, Iran is a country that has over 50% of its population are under 25. They're actually very well educated. Uh, most of them are trying to leave Iran, the young people, because they want to go somewhere where they can actually make a better living. So I think it's also careful for us to, to, to keep in mind how we, how we judge it. And if any of you want to jump in on that, too. I don't know. Other, other questions? How long was she in prison? A little over four months. Isn't that right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But she wasn't sure. They were telling her, oh, you'll be released in a few days if you just confess and work with us. And then it was, you could be here for life. And then it was eight years. And they kept changing it. Um, I, I would like to bring up the idea of due process, which is something we take for granted here in the United States. When you are arrested, first of all, there has to be a warrant. There has to be enough evidence to arrest you in the first place. To convict you, there has to be evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. There are rules. We don't always agree with what judges do and what courts do, but there is definitely a process that has to be followed. If it is violated, you could be set free even if you are, in fact, guilty. Um, There's the presumption that you are innocent 
until proven guilty. Okay, you have to be officially charged. There's a lot of rules that are in place in the United States. Her experience with the Iranian courts was a little bit different. They didn't have those kinds of rules necessarily. And if, even if they did on paper, they were not enforcing them. There were no checks and balances. She didn't even trust her own attorney. He was pretty much working for them or intimidated by them, pressured by them. Um, would the panel like to comment more about the differences in due process? Well, I think she, you know, one, one thing she was very... Um, adamant about at the outset was saying, you know, I'm, you know, I'm innocent. You know, where's the evidence? These sort of things. And it wasn't until she kind of started to play the game a little bit that she made progress, actually. Uh, because, and what was very frustrating, and I, I mean frustrating, is in you were, you know, you were rooting for her to get out, uh, and it was a real roller coaster. Was all these things they kept trying to do is to say, you know, we need you to cooperate. We need you to cooperate. And you're thinking, what the heck do I need to do to cooperate? Just as she was thinking. And the, their motive was always the same. Uh, it seems that they always kind of had it in for her. And what she said, in some ways, really didn't matter. And so, you know, unlike here, in most cases, here in the U.S., where, you know, you are, you know, innocent until proven guilty, that concept did not exist there. Because, again, they had other reasons why she was captured. And when she, when she was first interrogated, she had no lawyer by her side. There was no such thing in place. She was left on her own, blindfolded, and just listening to them. And once she did confess, then they said, okay, now we want you to make a video. Now we want names. Now we want you to create, I think it's a sketch mm -hmm. of, of possible people. And she would do everything that she could to outfox out them or outsmart them by just coming with random descriptions and they would still draw it out. And then she wasn't done. They weren't happy with the video. They wanted her to release another one or make another one. So it was this continual where she thought she had done what they wanted to gain her freedom. They would put something else in her, in her path. Um, and again, she was alone without representation. For those of us who have grown up, understanding the justice system, the way it's supposed to work, it doesn't always work in the United States, but the way it's supposed to work and designed to work is for protection of people, so that they are innocent until proven guilty. In this case, you're proven guilty until you can figure out a way to, you know, for someone to find you innocent, and that's not easy to do. What other comments or questions do you all have? I'd be curious how many of you in here. Oh, there's a question in the back. Go ahead. Go ahead. Could you repeat that? When they broke into her apartment? She's 31. I think, yeah, early 30s, 31. I'd just be curious how many of you in the audience um, have sympathy for her, how many of you kind of share what the other young gentleman was saying about uh, just that, you know, She's kind of an idiot for going there to begin with. She shouldn't have gone there. Just any kind of thoughts and comments on that from, from some of you? Yes, ma'am. Um, I've been to Iran, and I mean, I didn't have that experience. I mean, I just know that like, when you go to a She did, right? She did. She was yeah. telling them. I just want to paraphrase for the podcast that this young lady pointed out that she's been to Iran and she knows that when you travel to another country, you don't speak out against the government. You don't spread a new kind of ideology. Um, you just don't do those kinds of things. And she's asking, did she have permission to write this book? And the panel, didn't she? Yeah. I was under the impression that, you know, as I was saying earlier, that it was somewhat vetted in some way that what she was doing wasn't in the surprise and that she had been in contact previously to get permission to, to get the press pass to that she had explained the basic details of what this book was. I think one of the, the things that stood out for me was that she had trying to think of the specific organization but when she was detained oh, the she, it, it wasn't the Center for American Progress. It was I want to it was an organization when I tried to find the exact name of it that she uh, that had previously worked with. It was a it was basically a government think tank that was working with moderates. It was run by a former president of Iran who was a moderate, and 
this is kind of like a death knell, so to speak. If you've been working with one of these organizations, she was interviewing uh, people from this organization. And also, I was talking about that aid with the soft warfare before. If your group is getting money from a foreign entity like the United States, that's kind of um, a red flag as well. So I think when you put these together, now keep in mind, if they really thought she was a spy, they, she even mentioned this, they could have detained her a long time ago. They waited until she was about to leave the country. And I think this is the unfortunate part. And we were talking about the hikers. The hikers weren't actually in Iran. They were along the border and apparently uh, told by an Iranian guard to, you know, come over here type of a thing. And as soon as they crossed this arbitrary land that you had no idea that you were now crossing in Iran, that's when they detained the hikers. And it, it just appears that these, these people are being treated as bargaining chips, that Iran uses these types of prisoners in exchange for something in return from them. Like the hikers just got uh, announced that they're going to be released. In two weeks, Ahmadinejad's coming to New York to give a talk at the United Nations. And this is a way of kind of improving his goodwill. Um, in July, she was re uh, uh, within a month or two of, of uh, Roxana Sabari's release, there was five Iranian people in the United States who were released. Um, who had been convicted of, uh, you know, we have a, United States has a sanctions with Iran due to the weapons program, and they had been involved with trade um, in, with Iran. And so there was actually a prisoner exchange. We have no idea if it was a quid pro quo. But she was very concerned, and this is one of the more powerful things for me in this book, is that she was concerned that she, in some way, because of her detainment, led to a negative relationship between the United States and Iran, that that because there had to be this bargaining and there was all this external pressure on Iran to release her, that her individual situation was diminishing the relationship between these two countries. Which I don't think it'd be that needed too much help anyway. <laughs> and I think I'll add also, as far as her motivation to go to Iran, uh, something that I don't think can be underestimated is her drive to be a journalist and her, her really her love of Iran. Um, her father was Iranian, right? Yeah, her father was Iranian. Uh, you know, like we said, she had dual citizenship. And, you know, to be a journalist, you know, foreign, domestic, whatever the case may be, you have to be willing to make some sacrifices. Um, I worked as a journalist for a while. I got out of it because <laughs> uh, you don't get paid anything when you're starting <laughs> off. All right. Uh, you make a lot of sacrifices. You work weird hours. Uh, you know, all these sorts of things. And, you know, when you're taking it to the level that she did as far as being a foreign correspondent, yeah, there's those things, those inconveniences, but all of a sudden it becomes truly dangerous. And, you know, something that I thought of throughout the book is she really had to have a love of the country, a love of Iran, and that curiosity to push her, uh, you know, into going there and taking the risk she did by talking to people. Because remember, she was very well connected. You cannot be a functioning journalist without being connected, you know, internet, telephone, mail, anything. She had all of those, and as it turns out, they were all being monitored. So she took those risks um, and, you know, unfortunately led to her, her capture, and then they had all, these, uh, all this evidence, if you will, on her. Uh, but she had that drive to be a journalist, and I think that's what made her go, one of the major factors. And in the preface to the book, she talks about that, her familial connection with Iran, the fact that she wanted to go there to learn the language and the culture, um, and also to write a book that opened up Iran to the rest of the world to, to kind of uh, get rid of all of these misunderstandings and so that the world would better know the people of Iran, its diversity and its richness. Um, and, and, and she did, you know, in the result of this book, we do know more about what's going on with the government of Iran and the people who are taken there. But were it not for the bravery of international journalists, where would we get our information about places such as Iran or North Korea or China or anywhere else for that matter? If it were not for them, we would be reliant on the information their own governments issue to other, um, you know, other newspapers or news outlets. So I, I think that there is something we need to consider about the sacrifices that they do make and how we can benefit from, from those sacrifices and their bravery. And the fact that our governments do not engage in direct dialogue with one another is, is a problem. So as, as Sandra mentioned, 
what is our perception going to be of Iran? Um, you know, I, I had to laugh because if you guys remember a couple of years ago when the movie 300 came out, um, Ahmadinejad was all over the press saying, you know, this, you know, Americans are going to watch this movie and they're going to think that, that um, you know, this is how Persia is being portrayed in terms of its relationship with, with uh, ancient Sparta back in ancient times. And I thought, dude, do you think most Americans even make the connection that Persia and Iran are the same place? Because we do know very little about it. Like, thanks, Ahmadinejad, you just helped a bunch of people know that <laughs> Persia and Iran are now the same place. So there is a, la a lack of understanding, I think, on both sides, and maybe uh, different perceptions of what, what each thinks of the other, and which is why I mentioned the fact that you do have a lot of young people in Iran who have a lot of curiosity about the rest of the world, and, and, and probably if we maybe did engage in some more direct dialogue, would probably go a long way to, to help, helping to change things. Troy Sonson, our librarian, just uh, suggested that the press had a huge role in her being released and in this whole ordeal, that our government was pretty much silent and they weren't the ones we can thank for her release. Journalists really are a, a very strong fraternity. You know, there's an, there's an understanding there. You know, you have each other's back in a lot of ways. You might see, even, even around here, you know, you might see uh, the beat writer for the Bears helping out the beat writer. The beat writer for the Bears from the Sun-Times helping out the beat writer for the Bears from the Tribune. Uh, yes, there's a rivalry there, but the reporters themselves help, help each other out. This became a worldwide uh, cause for journalists because um, Saberi, when her, she, you know, her parents found out that she was being held, and when they went to visit her, she said, you know, you know, they, they themselves actually went to the press with her story, knowing that that was her outlet. You know, we, someone asked earlier about what could the government do, our, our government do in Iran, and you know, they're sovereign. I mean, there wasn't much we could do, but Saberi fortunately knew what to do as far as getting the word out in the media. And those journalists she knew would get behind her. And there's organizations such as um, Report, uh, Reporters Without Borders. Um, there's also, uh, you know, uh, the Freedom Press uh, is another organization who really look out for reporters in, in very dangerous areas. Um, you know, uh, if, if you go to Roxana Saberi's website, uh, I went there last night. She actually had the petitions online to encourage folks to sign to uh, free the hikers. You know, there's a real sense of camaraderie there, even though they're not journalists, but she understands the power of that and the power of the Internet and the, the social aspect of it, the coming together. Uh, so she fortunately knew as a journalist how effective that would be, and, you know, her parents did as well. So that, that strength, that, that fraternity of journalists, um, that fam familial kind of feeling is really what drove her to be released. Yes, she did know the power of that, and they were warning her and threatening her, don't have your parents speak to anybody about this. And she would go in for a hug and whisper really quick, tell the presses, you know. Yeah. And then new prisoners coming into Evan, they would come in and they would recognize her. We know who you are. We know all about your story. Your, your story's all over in America and all over in all these other countries as well, and the Internet, and everybody's talking about you. And she was so relieved, and that empowered her even more. Yeah. She felt so much more empowered by that. And she didn't know at first. She wasn't sure if anybody had heard anything. Right. And so. then I think that emboldened her to begin fasting. And so she began um, denying. She would, she would for a while just have a diet of sugar water or maybe a few dates, and then she would continue to fast. And they were, I was struck by how terrified they were of that and how much power that had over them because they, they kept saying to the guards and the doctors, you must eat, you must eat. And they even forcibly gave her an IV because they understood that the story was huge. And because of the journalists and because of the fact the information was out there, that gave her leverage that as a prisoner she otherwise wouldn't have had. So I think that that, that speaks to the power of journalism. Mm -hmm. And even her captors understood the power of the journalism. You know, if they had a journalist on their hands, you know, die because of a hunger strike or something like that, that story would really, you know, hit hard for them, even though, you know, they, they kind of, 
you know, segregate themselves a little bit from other countries, so to speak, but they did not want that publicity, that bad publicity on them. I was really surprised, too, about the power. When I heard her talking about her hunger strike and her warning them about her hunger strike, I thought, what's that going to do? They don't care about you. They don't even give you a pillow. Right. And yet it did. It had a huge impact. Yeah, question. Yeah, why did she go to Iran in the first place after growing up in America? Is that the question? Yeah. yeah. I think it's kind of what we discussed before, that she was trying to, in a way, open up Iranian-American relations more and write a book that would tell the story of, of, of Iran from a different perspective, of you know, ordinary Iranians from different walks of life with different political perspectives, too. So that the average, the, I think her intended audience, I think it's safe to say if you guys agree, agree with me, were, was Americans, probably, yeah. were the, the Western world, um, to read that and find and out. And don't forget, she it. herself has Iranian ancestry. Okay, so she kind of, yeah, so she wanted to go and find out more about her own heritage. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it's an, another point to make here is that the Iranian government right now, the current administration, is in a bit of a, a precarious situation. You know, they're following the events that are taking place all throughout the Middle East with a lot of trepidation and concern because they're afraid that they're next. And uh, definitely Ahmadinejad's administration, I think this is almost like, let's play nice and we're going to release these, ha these uh, hikers to show that we're trying to play nice with the rest of the world. Not to mention the fact that they are also paying some bail. I think it's like half a million dollars. Each one, I think, has to pay a half a million dollars. So um, the Arab Spring that's been sweeping all throughout uh, the Middle East is scaring the crap out of a guy like Ahmadinejad uh, because he knows that he very well could be next. Franklin, yeah. which I'm using, isn't it? <laughs> on to what they were saying earlier to Troy's uh, question, there was also the Voice of America and Radio Farsi that had um, so part of that soft warfare we were talking about allowed for these types of radio programs to be broadcast inside of Iran, and that was also helpful, helpful, helpful in getting out her, the, her situation to, to people. And then earlier, there was multiple questions on this, but on page 14, she said, the Iranian authorities were aware of my continued news reporting and then never told me to stop. I figured they didn't mind that I was sharing news briefs and a few features about Iran with the outside world. Then they asked her about why she was working with Fox News when, they, when she should have realized that that was an arm of the United States Pentagon. Um, she said that she had explained that the culture of ministry had given her permission to send those reports. And then earlier we were talking about that center that she was associated with, the Center for Strategic Research. She was doing some editing for reports that they had, and her interrogator said that that was top secret, classified information, but she, she said there was no secret, you know, top secret information that this was all, you know, common knowledge type uh, government think tank that had nothing critical or anything that was deemed classified. That ended up being a sticking point, by the way, and they, they ended up handwriting secret on it to try to demonstrate to her that it was secret. <laughs> because but there was no stamp. There was, it has yeah. to have a stamp, and she knew that, even though they had written secret on it to try to dissuade her. Yes. Does she plan to revisit Iran? Well, can she and will she? I doubt she will now. She wants to eventually. She has this envisioned hope that eventually Iran is the place that she wants it to be, where there's increased rights and freedoms. She knows better. She, she doesn't have any immediate plans to return, but hopes that sometime, you know, within her lifetime, that thing, the situation will improve and that, you know, just as in the United States, that you wouldn't just be randomly taken and held arbitrarily for that long. Yeah, does anyone have any other questions or comments? Yes, in the back.
Finding ways to do it. Yeah. Yeah. We saw with the Green Revolution uh, a couple of years ago. Okay. Does anyone else have any other comments or questions? Well, thank you so much for your attendance at our panel, and um, it was it was a wonderful experience. And thank you so much to our panelists. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.